we had imposter syndrome for at least five, six years where we were like in every meeting, we were like, oh my God, soon someone's going to call our bluff and realize that we're not sure about anything. But then after also almost around five years, we realized that, wait a minute, there's almost no one in any meeting knowing anything, but there's a lot of people pretending that they know. And then we felt like, why do everyone keep acting like they know when they don't know? People shouldn't have imposter syndrome because it's just like everyone are humans. the future podcast a show that explores the interesting overlap between design marketing and business i'm greg gunn if punk rock were a genre of design agency then snask would definitely be the sex pistols as they say on their website snask is a creative agency of misfit geniuses conquering the world through fine looking design and real emotions to worry about what people think of us is a waste of time well said snask In today's episode, we are fortunate enough to be joined by the founder of Snask and really get to know him as a person. And in the spirit of his agency, the conversation oscillates between emotional vulnerability and genuine playfulness. So if all goes well, you will laugh, cry, and be inspired in no particular order. All right, I'm not going to say much else because I think you should just listen to it. Please enjoy our conversation with Freddie Ost. I'm really excited to talk to you because... I didn't know who you were until I saw you backstage at the design conference in Brisbane. And I knew that they had you uh, up there for a reason because you guys are wild. And I remember you saying to me backstage, like, yeah, I usually bring a rock band. But you said it in such a deadpan manner. I wasn't sure if you were serious or you were pulling my leg. (laughs) And it turned out you were serious. And and you do such an unusual presentation. Like, I was kind of on the edge of my seat, like thinking... What is going on with these guys that come on? One person sits on a couch and then you're doing your thing. And the thing is, you win everybody over the minute you start to show your work and you talk about it. There's a humor. There's an intelligence to the work that you guys do and a freshness to it that I think you just win people over that way. I mean, this this is incredible. So I have so many questions to ask you. Uh, first of all, before I get go on any further, for people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself, please? Yes, of course. And and I mean, thank you for those kind words, Chris. And I mean, I think compared to, to your talk, ours is more fun and entertaining, while as your talk is super, like, useful. You learn things, actually, <laughs> which I think is like, maybe that's why people go to those conferences, not to just to have fun. But yeah, but very, I mean, very nice words from you. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, my name is Freddie and I'm the founder of Snask and we've been around for 14 years and we're, I, I live in Sweden and that's where our, our agency is, is based as well. We're fairly small, so we only have like six people employed on our team, but we have a lot of like a big freelance network that we use around us. So we're, yeah, it depends on how you count. Mm-hmm. How do you describe Snask to people? I describe us as bold in the sense that we we kind of uh, don't we we kind of want to challenge and question our our audience as well as our clients and everyone where we have a dealing with uh, 
but not not just to provoke because sometimes people can think that Snask only wants to provoke uh, but that's not the case and not at all when it comes to, to work branding or, or concept wise we really just want to push it so that it's like genuine and that it's good and that the people who will see it actually will care about the company or not yeah so I think in that case we that's a good way to describe us uh, I'm not sure how how Snask sounds in English. How does it sound to you, Chris? <laughs> it sounds like a nasty word for some reason. You it know? is, and that's yeah, yeah. I like that's it. It's funny. It is, and then then I looked it up, and it, and it says it, like it means like three different things in Swedish. Like it means sweet, filthy, uh, and and gossip or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like it's incredible that one word can mean so many different things, and I think yes. it perfectly captures like the essence of who you guys are. I want to spend quite some time talking to you about the agency, the work, because it's so inspired and how you guys do what you do. But I want to talk to Freddie first as a person and mm-hmm. what it was like for you. Um, you you're, you look Asian to me, but you're Swedish. Mm-hmm. So naturally, I have to ask, like, what is going on there? I was adopted when I was uh, two years old from mm-hmm. South Korea. So I was told that I was left outside a police station and then brought to an orphanage and stuff like that. But as I then uh, researched my adoption uh, many, many years later, I found out that there are like four stories that goes around from everyone who's adopted, especially from South Korea. And mine mine is one of those four. So probably that didn't happen. I was also bo- uh, born with a cleft palate. Like, I'm not sure what you call it yeah. in English, but um, sometimes uh, in adoption, they tell they, the parents can't afford um, an operation. So they go to hospital and then an adoption center will basically, at that point at least, buy the child by buying the surgery that is needed. And the condition is that they will then replace the child somewhere else. So, I mean, it's a a lot of horrible stories like that. And maybe that's what happened to me. I don't know, but I know that that's what I was born with. Uh, And then I came to Sweden when I was two years old, where everyone are like super tall and blonde. And uh, old pants uh, in XXXS might suit me because uh, I went back to South Korea and I realized that I'm a medium in pants there uh, as a man. But in Sweden, I'm like, I, there's not even a size for me. So I always have to buy pants and then go to the tailor and make them shorter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you get adopted. And what is childhood like for you? Uh, I always wonder this because I came to America as a refugee from Vietnam. And I always felt out of place in Caucasian, white, European America. You know, it's like, this is very different. And it, it wasn't the easiest experience growing up here. You know, it's not as progressive and it still has some issues. But what's it like in Sweden growing up as as a as an Asian person in terms of ethnicity? I mean, it's strange for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, since I was adopted, it's a bit different because as an adoptive child, and so I realized after talking to a lot of adopted people um you i i thought that i was white of course i knew i wasn't but inside i felt like a pure normal swede like anyone else and it was fine i mean there was some people who would like tease you for things uh, because you didn't look like everyone else but also i know that that goes for people who look different no matter if if it's a race or or your body type or whatever but yeah I, i remember having a little bit of that but the big thing came, I think, when you hit puberty and then you realize that, huh, okay, I'm not shoesable. I'm not one of those that are shoesable. 
to be like a good match for a BLM partner or whatever, because all the stereotypes are built around white people and all the movies that ever, that I ever watched up until like recent years, everyone was white, a white man or a white girl uh, falling in love with another white person. And that became like the, without knowing that became the mindset of like, oh, so that's how you should, should be. And I don't look like that. And um, everyone who was Asian was just good at karate or, 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 or basically being funny or joking. And that became like, I didn't reflect upon that until later. Uh, but I, I know for sure that I felt like, why am I not allowed to be on the same like level as everyone else? Um, that was really strange to, to feel because I, I always, as I said, felt like I was uh, like everyone else inside. And then also, I remember when I met other adoptive people uh, when I was younger, I would hate them. And of course, I wouldn't hate them. It's a strong word, but I would like, I couldn't stand watching them because it would remind me that I'm not part of the group entirely. Because, uh, and, and, and when, when you don't see yourself in the mirror, you just believe that, yeah, you are, you look like everyone else. But yeah, that's... Um, Good question. I mean, later in the years, I think I started to, I read Brene Brown's book, uh, Courage to be Vulnerable, and uh, uh, had relationship issues uh, with my girlfriend, and she told me a lot about this as well. And so I was like, okay, I need to dig into this. And before that, I always said like, well, my adoption is, is not a problem. Uh, my, I mean, my parents obviously didn't want me, and I'm not going to go and look for them. And I'm fine as I am, blah, blah, blah. But then when I started to really dig into myself, I went to a personality development course for one year and then you dig into your past and your present and your future. And of course that came up and then I really got to deal with it in a very good way, I think, that mm -hmm. I never thought about because two years old when you're adopted, there's something called um, theory of what do you call, there are patterns that are made inside of you when you're really, really young that can like influence the rest of your life. Uh, so I think that that got me really interested in that. And this might sound a bit hippish, but I did a meditation with one of my therapists where I got to go back in time to be the baby at the, the hospital. Uh, and I could see my mom in the meditation, of course, uh, standing by the bed crying, but also being happy that I'm gonna have a better life. And that made me cry in the meditation. And I always, suddenly I was like, huh, this is so different. This mm. is like healing in a way because the, the, the conscious mind understands it's a meditation, but the brain doesn't know. So the brain will then experience uh, of sort of a healing process, I think. And that was like one way for me to, to process it. And then I did a DNA test and uploaded it to every DNA portal there is. Still haven't got any matches, but now I'm like, okay, if anyone wants to find me, I'm here. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's a couple of things there. I want to go back and revisit there. Mm -hmm. It's like you have the narrative first, the narrative, and I can only imagine what it means to be an adopted person, right? Uh, where you think my parents don't want me. And that's, that's a harmful narrative to tell yourself. Mm. And we don't understand the circumstances outside of that. And through this therapy um, that you were able to create a new narrative, which is uh, it's a heartbreaking decision for any parent to give up their child mm. and that if they can't provide for you, then at least you have a better life. I mean, Steve Jobs, 
probably one of the most famous adopted children. Mm. And he has a better life because of the parents who ultimately find him. And the way that I like to think of it is um, you can't you can't choose your, your family. You can choose your friends. But adopted parents are different. They actively chose you. Mm. And that's like a really special bond. And it sounds like when, when you're telling a story, it's so healing. And I think it's going to touch a lot of people who who might be in a situation like this. I'm getting a little emotional here just thinking about it. Um, what, what, what year in your life is this? I mean, how old are you when you're having this, this moment and this, this ability to revisit the past? Uh, this is funny because obviously, um, um, this was like last year actually, or oh maybe God. it was, maybe it was last, last year. year or one and a half year ago. No, I was, it wasn't during Corona. So like, yeah, two years ago. Wow. So up until then I was like more closed uh, as a person i think mm-hmm. and more like didn't want to reflect too much about it even though i s- told people that yeah i thought about it and i could speak about it but i think that everyone that has a wound inside uh, learns how to speak about their wound in public like t- to people like yeah you know i was adopted and this is my story but that i learned that that's a defense mechanism because you don't want to go into that subject so you right. make up a narrative you make people satisfied with hearing that, and then you don't have to talk about it anymore. And I realized that's what I've been doing for, for all these years. Yeah. Okay. Um, was there an event or anything that happened that caused you to think maybe I, I want to visit this in a deeper way? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, starting off with my ex-girlfriend, me and her uh, were together for four years. That's where it kind of started that I, I re- we, we had some fights. She got really upset with me. And I thought after a while, like either she's insane or something is wrong with me. Because I think up until then, I thought that I'm a really good boyfriend here. And then I realized and or I knew that, no, she's not insane. So something is wrong with me. So I Googled like... Why do men, why do people leave each other? And then there was this uh, couple therapist from the US and he, he said like most women that leave their husbands that I've had in therapy, they leave them uh, because they don't feel loved. Not because they don't love their husband, it's because they don't feel loved by the husband, by the man. And that struck something inside of me that I was like, okay, this is probably true in this case. And I couldn't shy away from it. And at that point, it was already too late. We lost our love between each other. We became more friends and whatever. And so we ended that. And then my my new girlfriend and my present girlfriend, she was like super like uh, instantly like, you need to open the door to your emotional life. You need to like start being in tune with your emotions. You need to know, learn how to identify your emotions, all of these things. Uh, and... I think that the fights that we had were based around the wounds in our lives, both hers and mine. So we started instantly going in couple therapy because we thought like maybe that's wiser to do in the beginning than in the end. And then I think like after that, it just shot, uh, became more and more like uh, I started to realize more and more like if I want to develop myself and, and try to be a better person and everything I need to like start doing something and actually after we met in Australia that was a breaking point in our relationship me and my girlfriend and I felt like either we break up here or we we try again but then I need help because I can't change the way I want just by myself I mean because you can think so much on your own but then you need help and I I felt like I need to do something and that's when I went to this uh, 
personal development course and that was the best thing i ever done in my life oh. uh, and that changed so much uh, with me and i'm not a different person but i just i think i know myself better and i know my ins and outs and yeah yeah wow thanks for sharing that with me of course i i just i knew we we're gonna go into some deep place and here we are already and it, I find it kind of interesting, the juxtaposition between how you describe yourself in your relationship with like closing off the emotions. And as a man, I do that, too. And I wasn't adopted. It's just like I'm not ready to access that. And I think a lot of men feel uh, build up a wall to their emotions because like there's this stereotypical image of what a man is supposed to be like tough, strong, unemotional, logical. And, and so there's there's always that that struggle to kind of tap into that. I find it interesting because the work that your agency produces is anything but reserved. I mean, you go against the norm and you 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 kind of, like you said, uh, it's not meant to be just deliberately provocative for the sake of being provocative, but the work that you do, it, it makes people smile. It makes people laugh. And, and there's a lot of emotion and heart in the work. How does one separate those two things? Or, or is the work the therapy for the, for what's happening inside? I mean, I think it's, I think it's all a mix of what you just said, but I want to start pointing out that, I mean, all the work that we do is teamwork. So it's not the genius Freddy because I'm not a genius. I'm just a person in a team and we are a lot of people working on it. So, I mean, it's always a mix of people thinking, uh, coming up with things, but I actually don't think that because I mean, of course there's, there's something from all of us in, in the work that we do, but I mean. I do think that it's easier to do it at work than doing it with yourself looking in the mirror or with your partner, because that's the most intimate relationship. That's the most like private and, and beautiful and most ugly thing that you have. And that person will see all of, all of you. And I think that's where it's, where it's so hard to, to show everything that is ugly or, or beautiful or whatever. Uh, I think in work, it's easier. It's just like, Bah, here it is. Here's something nice. Here's something fun. It suits your brand, all of that. But if it comes to yourself, it is. You need to go into your wounds. You need to take off your armor. And yeah, there's only one way to do it. Yeah. Okay, so if we forward the timeline into the point in which you, you start to think about advertising and design, where are you in your life? How old are you? And when do you come to the realization like this is a good field for me to to get into? So I was studying psychology and media uh, at the university and me not and more because I was just, yeah, it's interesting subjects, but I never thought that I would be a psychiatrist or anything. But then uh, I met my, my best friends there at the university and we started a club night. So we had it every second Saturday. We would DJ and book bands and uh, I would be the one who knew Photoshop and Illustrator from being younger, just from playing around with it. Uh, so I naturally did the, the identity without knowing uh, uh, logotypes, super ugly identity. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I did a website, super ugly. And someone even told me, a guy that was pretty good designer, he told me, like, try to be nice. And I know, just so you know, like, you, there's things you could improve. And I was like, no, he doesn't know. And now, of course, I understand <laughs> that he was, he was right. Uh, but that got me into that. And then I started studying graphic design. Um, kept doing flyers and, and posters for the, for the club nights. And then I moved to England and studied three years in England, uh, graphic design. And that's basically what got me into it. And then when we graduated, we started up Snask instantly without any, any experience from the industry, which was 
a challenge, but everyone told us like you need 10 years of experience uh, to start up your own agency. But then we felt like we will get someone else's experience and we will get probably an old white man's experience because that's how most theories and methods have been made before. So we felt like, let's just do the mistakes ourselves from here on and see if we can find our own solutions. And of course, we borrow loads of solutions that's already there, but we want to at least see that, okay, this is something we think is is fine. Mm -hmm. Um, Just before I I get to the next question, I wanted to ask you about, did you finish your studies in psychology and media before going to the UK? Uh, I I know I was just studying, like, what do you say? I started a program called Behavioral Science Program, Mm -hmm. uh, which was three years. And in that you could choose different courses. So, so I basically just read one course of psychology, one course of media and communication, one course of uh, rhetorics, the art of convincing people or speaking public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so that was basically the courses. So mm-hmm. I finished them, but that was, yeah, they were only courses. So not very, mm-hmm. not a, not a bachelor. Mm-hmm. You go to the UK and you study graphic design mm-hmm. for like three years, did you say? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then, and then you start the agency. Is this, is this with Magnus? Is this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so what, did he follow you to the UK and you guys both studied graphic design or did you do something different in those three years? No, we met in, on the bus from Manchester to Carlisle and Carlisle was the place where we studied. I see. Uh, And uh, then we, that's where we met. Mm -hmm. uh, And then basically that's how we got to know each other. And then we, we started SNASC as an idea and a brand and everything uh, in the second year of university, I see, and then we kept building on it the third year, and then the, the, when we graduated, we started it up. Magnus took a job on the side for a while because he w- did. He f- felt it was a bit scary to start instantly, mm-hmm. uh, so I started it myself first, and then Petter, a third guy that was also in England, uh, also jumped on. So him and me then took it further. Then Magnus joined after a year, and then Eric, which is my partner today, joined mm-hmm. two years later. I see. Okay. A couple of quick questions uh, just to tie it back to your parents. Do your parents have an opinion about you going to the UK and studying graphic design? Or is this like, I don't know how it is like in Sweden. Like, do parents just let everybody do whatever they want? Do they support you financially? Or are you on your own? How does this work? I mean, one, when it just comes to letting your kids do whatever they want, I think that, yeah, that's probably very Swedish that, that you kind of let your, your kid do whatever they feel like they want to do or pursue. Uh, of course, if it has to do with studying, they will promote it for you. But when it comes to financial, we have uh, grants and loans. Uh, so everyone, no matter background or who you are, where you're from in Sweden, you can study. You can study for at least six years. Uh, and the, the government will will give you some of it as a grant and some of it as a very beneficial loan. So I still pay pay my loan after 14 years, but it's totally fine. and. Mm. It has to do with your income and everything. So, yeah, that's, that's how. That's wonderful. Okay. Okay. Year one of a business is, is always the most telling. Like, I'm a big comic book fan. And so when the legend has been established, they go back and they tell the year one story where Batman is a little clumsy. He doesn't know what he's doing. So I'd love to spend a little bit in year one because I think it's so revealing. Uh, because most most companies don't get out of year one. They, they, they usually go broke. And so I imagine you graduating school probably no money to your name and no clients. So how do you start a business without that? Yeah, I mean, that's super hard. Uh, when it comes to the money bit, what we wanted to, we also read that 
one in ten companies survive one year. Yeah. Uh, so we were like, okay, we need to like make sure we don't empty the 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 money on the the company on cash uh, just because. So we decided to give the company a, a good chance to survive. So we said that let's let's take um, a loan or make sure that we can work for ten months in the company without taking out a wage. And if you want to borrow money from a bank or from your parents, or if you want to work extra on weekends, that's fine. But that was basically the idea from from the start. So me and Petter started out uh, and we, we we took loans, both of us, uh, and we didn't take out any wage for 10 months. And when Magnus joined, uh, he, he, he did the same thing. And in that sense, financially, that was kind of good because we could bunker up some money in the in the company account. But when it comes to work, that's all for us. It all had to do with contacts and friends. And now, I, some people think that it's ugly to ask friends or talk about business with friends. But I think that that's what friends like should be for. They should help you uh, and and not be like the opposite. And I think that I mean, five years in the business, uh, we looked back and almost every client that we had came from a friend somehow from the beginning. But after five years, it started rolling without uh, being connected to a friend somehow from the beginning, early, early. Uh, but uh, yeah, but so so for us, friends were super important, speaking to friends about it. And yeah. So you use the friends and family network. You reached out to those people and, and just uh, like, does anybody have anything we could do? Is that is that the kind of how it goes? They, I mean, almost. I mean, yeah. then of course there was. I remember that we. I sat at this uh, co-working space in the beginning, and I got to know a woman there who was an actress, uh, freelancing in in coaching, I think. And she knew someone who worked at the School of Dramatic uh, Theater. And they and then know that we then got a project uh, from them, and that was through the through the co-working space. But most others was through, yeah, through, through friends who started working somewhere and they needed an agency and yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of them. And what was like, I remember the city of Malmo, that was like a work that we got even before we started the company. We were there and we did this rolling gallery of graphic design uh, called the Caravan Project. So we rebuilt the uh, caravan into a gallery. And then that year we met the festival general at this uh, city festival and she really liked us. And then she said, let me know when you start an agency because we told her we would. And then we did and we got the pitch uh, and then we won that. But uh, it wasn't really like hard selling, like what is it called business selling? It was more like building relationship and yeah, that way getting our job. Mm-hmm. Okay, just I'm trying to relate this back to my own experience when I started my my own agency. A very similar story to you. Just I get out of school, I freelance for a little bit. This, I don't want to do this. I just want to work for myself. That first year was tough doing doing like projects for like weeks long for 500 bucks and sleeping on the floor. And then you keep doing this and you, you have a lot of self-doubt. Like, is this the right decision? Should I go work for someone, get real experience? But then eventually you have a breakthrough moment. So what was your breakthrough moment in that where you knew like, yeah, we can do this. We're, we're like legitimate. Actually, it was this, um, this uh, Malmo festival. Uh, when we got to do their 
we became their agency of that whole year and they gave us the whole budget to produce all everything and of course today that budget is super small but back then it was huge for us we were like wow that's so big uh, that felt really like okay and when we managed to do that and deliver on that we felt like oh felt so nice and we felt so big and like okay we can do this but i mean we had imposter syndrome for at least five six years at least when we were like <laughs> in every meeting we were like oh my god soon someone's gonna call our bluff and realize that we don't know like we're not sure about anything but then after also almost around five years we realized that wait a minute there's almost no one in any meeting knowing anything but there's a lot of people pretending that they know uh, and play acting grown-ups uh, and then we felt like why do everyone keep acting like they know when they don't know it's like yeah i asked my my wife or husband yesterday and he thought that this logo type looks like an elephant it's like okay but maybe we should bring your husband or wife in instead because he or she is a brand expert uh no 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 he or she isn't okay, so how is this relevant and no, it doesn't look like an elephant, but I mean, and that's so interesting. Like people just say stuff, throw things out, which is fine, right. but then we shouldn't, people shouldn't have imposter syndrome because it's just like everyone are humans, everyone are just, yeah, mm -hmm. whoever. And you can be a hundred years old and be 20 years old because of the shit happened to you, or you can be like 15 year old and be an 80 year old. So I think right. that, yeah. You're, you're saying that chronological age is not necessarily like your actual maturity age, right? Because you can get no, stuck. No, not at all. Right. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Freddie. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome back to our conversation with Freddie Ost. Okay, so you said it took about five years to shake off this whole idea that maybe we don't know what we're doing because maybe nobody knows what we're doing or anybody and we're okay with that. And then is that when you start to come into your own and you feel like, yes, we, we got this and we have a very unique way of looking at the world? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, we always had the unique way of looking at the world, but before we didn't, as you say, knew if it worked or if anyone right. would buy into it or if mm -hmm. we, 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 I mean, if we would forever have a low salary 
and be like, yeah, but we have freedom. But then secretly like curse when you went to bed because you want financial stability and you want to be able to buy a house or whatever in the future. But yeah, somewhere around then we started. But we had a, a external CEO for a while. Uh, and he was like, we were talking to him about things. And then we told him like, yeah, we think this project is boring. So we're thinking about like not not doing that, like quitting that contract. Mm-hmm. And then he said, guys, I mean, I work at a bank. Uh, 99% of my work is really boring. Uh, 1% is fun. You guys complain over the one project. It's not that fun. And then he said, do you ever want to be able to buy your own apartments? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then you can't quit a contract, guys. That's so stupid. It's like, yeah. don't do that. Just dig in, do somewhere. I mean, this is what normal people do. Work is not fun. So you guys are just spoiled. And then we realize that's actually true. <laughs> <laughs> we can't just do, do work that we think is fun and then yeah. quit everything that we think is a bit boring. And yeah, but <laughs> yeah. So wait. I just want to be clear here. So do you, do you do take on some work to make money or you're like, no, we only want to do work. That's fun. No, I mean, of course we do. We do work that is uh, boring as well. But yeah. I think normally when we get our request, we, we, we look at the, the client and the ambition and then we see like, okay, is it budget and ambition uh, and its expectations accordingly? Perfect. That's like a great project. And last, years we got all more and more of those which is perfect but every now and then you get a project where like the budget is zero but the ambition is super high like maybe a charity project or something and then you can be like you know what we can do this and we won't get paid for the time but we will get something else in return or we can get the opposite where it's like you know what, this might not be the funniest project. We might not be able to do something that we will want to put in the portfolio, but it will give us money. And we've been low the last two months on some projects. So we should just do this and yeah, know that the money. Sometimes we even said like, we can do this and out of this budget, we will use a tenth of it to have fun with just yeah. to like, yeah. Yeah. We, we refer to it here as we steal from Peter to pay Paul. Because the big corporations will give you the budgets and you're like, great, you guys can afford it. And there's a tiny client that you feel connected with. And you know, normally you should not take on a project like that. But you're like, okay, we made money over here. We'll just, we'll just use it for this and we'll call this PR, right? So you manage yeah, that. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you, you, I think you said what you're like seven, is it seven people or six people? Uh, six people. Okay. Is one of those people a business person? No. <laughs> So who's, we don't have a business who's minding the shop? Like who, who's like, here's the profit and loss statement, Freddie. Um, it's uh, it's basically me and Eric okay. uh, kind of dividing that responsibility. But none of us was a business person from the beginning. But you have to learn. I mean, 14 years of, of having your own studio, you kind of have to like learn how to up your price, learn how to like value yourself. Uh, we learned the hard way, as I said before. We probably could have just took an employment and learned it. But... We decided to go our own way, and then we learned that uh, to have a low hourly rate and many hours is not very fun when you get to do a bigger project than you did before because you have to like work for three years on a project that yeah, and so it's way better to have like very high hourly rate but very few hours in the beginning, and then you can lie the other way instead. No, but this will only take three hours or whatever the hours are, and then the next time you get a job. 
you can say, but yeah, but this will take longer time and clients understand that, but clients don't understand something will be more expensive per hour. So you can always up your hours, but you can never up your price. Right. That was learned the hard way. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to get into some of the philosophy here and I just find uh, the writing that you guys put out there so sharp and so funny. Like I was reading your, I shared your profile bio on clubhouse with people in my community. I'm like, this is how you write a bio guys. Look at this. This is, I don't have those kind of writing skills, and but this is the gold standard. I, I'm on your site and, and you talk this manifesto. I'm not going to read all of them, but mm-hmm. I'd like to read a couple and then get you to talk about it. Okay. Mm-hmm. The first thing that I noticed from even your presentation in Brisbane was this idea that you want to make enemies and gain fans, right? So mm-hmm. somewhere in here, number 10 in the manifesto and the, in the SNAS manifesto says, Having enemies is a good thing. It proves that you stood up for something sometime in your life. So can you expand on what that means? Yeah. So, I mean, what we mean when we make enemies and game fans is that uh, as a brand or a person, uh, you need to, you should stand up for your own opinions and beliefs. And if you do that, if you truly genuinely do that and being that brave, you will get enemies because everyone can think alike and that's fine. Uh, but you will also get the right kind of fans. Fans that, that don't just scroll by your post, but fans that will actually stop, like, comment, tag their friends, and even share your post. And that's basically called engagement. And whether you're a business or a private person, it is valuable uh, to you as a person or to you as a brand or a company. So daring to have enemies is a good thing. And I think that a lot of companies are very afraid of making enemies yet no company in the whole world could have the entire world as a, as a market it's impossible so i mean that's basically what we mean it with it and we think that brands should stand up for things that is more than just their product values or service values okay so i totally get that and, and it's it seems very intuitive you got to stand for something and that means you're going to stand against something but we find that so many people and brands as a as a kind of reflection of the people are, are really scared they, they want to be like oh i just want to be for everyone is can we just get all along and when you hear something like that how how do you respond to that how can you help someone to have the courage to stand for something and and why is that a benefit i think that we normally take a metaphor of, of a personality of a human being a lot a lot of people are doing that because it's easy to understand but talking to a person for more than five minutes and that person doesn't tell you anything of what he or she actually thinks about things everything you're speaking to a diplomat you're speaking to a politician then you're not speaking to a real private person and i think it becomes boring and it becomes after a while if many brands are doing the same it becomes very generic Uh, and after a while there's only almost every brand in in the same industry have the same tone of voice the same the same things no one wants to put up a black square on Instagram on, on, on Black Lives Matters because that's too much. We don't really care about politics, even though it's not politics. It's just human rights. Uh, but I think that, that we want people, we want to push our clients to really stand for what they believe in. By doing this, for example, the Simon Sinek circles, like they have to come up with a why that is not money. Because everyone have money somewhere if you were a business or we push them and say that when they land in like, okay, we want to be this amount of brave, this amount of provocative, this amount of in- innovative, blah, blah, blah. 
And then we we normally say that, okay, let's say that a competitor to you, they buy up a small company and they create a brand that is more bold, more provocative, more innovative. Would you still want this position? And then almost everyone is like, no, no, we want to be that. So why didn't you pick that? Because we were risk minimizing. Uh huh. So if you just redraw this, is this fine with you now? And they're like, yeah, that's where we should be. And that's a common thing. I think everyone does that in human, especially if you do it in a process, in a workshop, it takes some time. There's always a risk minimizer in the group, which is fine. But when it comes to putting your brand values and your brand, you shouldn't hold back too much, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's beautiful. I love that. Uh, I want to read one one more here. So from the mm-hmm. SNAS manifesto, number five mm-hmm. is that bureaucracy is spelled bureau you crazy. Tell tell me about that. That's hilarious, by the way. That should be on a T-shirt. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's because we also misspelled bureaucracy so many times when we lived <laughs> in the UK, because we were like, this is a hard word to to spell, and it's very ironic because what it means is also it's exactly the same thing. When you can't spell bureaucracy, it's bureaucracy almost. It's like, can't it be easier? Why are they doing it this way? Why do you have to like? apply 15 times why i mean so we just couldn't stand bureaucracy and that's why we felt like well bureaucracy is bureaucracy Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah we we firmly believe that Mm -hmm. and and do you do you run your your studio like that like where you want to get rid of the red tape there's no hierarchy or there's 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 not a lot of middle management yeah, we have very little management, but it's yeah. easy for us to say. I mean, we're only six people. So, of course, if you're 40 people, you probably need middle management at some right. point. Uh, but, but, well, I think maybe, I think so, at least some part. I do think that our industry have way too many titles. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I do think that there have to be someone who has more or someone who has less responsibility within different fields. Um, but... Uh, yeah, but other than that, we don't have a lot of bureaucracy in Snask, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, number three, generosity always pays itself back. How does that manifest itself in the things that you do? I mean, it can be like sharing ideas with someone who asks you, sharing work, sharing like, I mean, you are the best person I know of this, uh, sharing your insights, your knowledge, everything. I think that they started in university when people were like, oh, what's your idea for this brief that we got? And they wouldn't want to tell someone yeah. because they thought someone might steal this or someone, blah, blah, blah. And then we just learned that no, no, it's way better to just share uh, and trust people. And, and it would be way better, much of a beautiful world, more beautiful world if people yeah. think like that. And then we just thought like that. So, I mean, trying to do that, it's basically paying it forward being general also it's like buying your friend a beer uh, without keeping count of how many did you buy how many did your friend buy or drink or whatever because i think that in at the end of the year it will probably be around fairly equal anyway and it yeah. doesn't matter and i think that yeah if you're generous uh, not only with money i mean in, and as a person as well it will pay itself back automatically okay talking about generosity you you go on tour, it's 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 you and and it's Eric I think. And when you guys go do your 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 talk, you're out of the office for for days because you got to travel to a place. You got to get set up, and then there's a travel back, and then jet lag and all. So how does the how does the studio or agency function 
when you're you're out on the road doing your thing it works it works really well i mean of course we also we need to plan if we're going to the states or to australia or places far away where we want to stay at least for for five days at least then it's a bit more planning and we need to like know in advance and we will plan the meetings around it and some some meetings you can have and, and you can of course email so it's a lot of emailing at conferences in the mornings i know that you wake up and you have 50 emails and like oh my god okay i'm gonna get through this before i go to lunch or whatever uh so that's uh kind of normal but i mean i think it works fine and i mean this year with corona has taught us that working from a distance doesn't mean that you you can't work together even though that it's nice to meet every now and then but i think that's yeah very evident that it does work mm-hmm. uh, but i mean when we're away it's not like we just let everything go and, and leave and, and leave them to fix everything but we we plan everything very into the little smallest details so that it's it's not strange or it doesn't it doesn't work it's like yeah mm-hmm. so it sounds like it's a lot of planning and then there's still a little bit of work you have to do while you're on the road just to make sure everything's moving along yeah another question i have for you is as a public speaker and, and it's interesting that you mentioned your behavioral science courses and rhetoric. It's like, oh, that's that's really interesting. So when you're on stage, what what is going on in your mind? Like, how do you feel? Are you are you excited? Are you nervous? Or what what's the emotion that's going on with you as you're about to come up on stage? As I'm about to go mm-hmm. up on stage, I can sometimes be incredibly nervous, but not in the same way that I was the first. I mean, the first time we had a lecture. It was on creating mornings in Stockholm. It was like 25 people in the audience. And I thought I would die. Mm. I was so nervous. Mm-hmm. like, And uh, so it was like super nervous at that, that point. And then I remember we, some years later, stood on off Barcelona in front of 500 people. And I remember being very nervous then as well, but, but not as nervous. And then nowadays i i get a bit nervous i can feel it in my stomach but not like my heart is going to explode <laughs> because that's how it was before yes. now it's just like uh i can feel my body telling me like you're nervous yeah. but my head is more calm and my heart is more calm and it's more like okay it's fine and then when i get out there i normally just go into character i think and and i'm in it and, but I mean, also, I, I, I tend to think that the more people in the audience, the less nervous I get uh, oh. in the show. I mean, it's like, it's so many people, so you just can't focus on seeing people. You can't see. But if you're in a lit room with 20 people, it's still a bit more scary because you see if someone looks tired or looks away or looks on their phone oh, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You say you go into character and you are a character on stage. So what character is that? How do you describe that character? <laughs> very energetic uh very uh maybe maybe a bit too provocative but mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know i think i think i want to be provocative on stage yeah um also um trying to be inspiring while telling stories that are kind of fun and stupid like telling people that like if we tell people that we fucked up a project or something i think that's inspiring for anyone to hear that Oh, this is like uh, anyone makes mistakes and it's natural and it's just how it goes. And I think that's that's a part of my character. I remember in 
Barcelona in front of 500 people, I asked if like, oh, how many are feminists? And then just a few people raised their hands. And then I screamed like, then you should probably read more. <laughs> and then I didn't think more about it. Right. Also because uh, we're in Sweden, we're from Sweden. Sweden is very feministic. I'm a feminist and mm-hmm. most people I know are. Uh, and it's about equality between genders and also equality between race and ethnicity and, and, and uh, sexuality and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, then we noticed afterwards that it came up a lot of people like, oh, that was brilliant that you mm-hmm. said that. No one has ever said anything like that here. Or in Russia, we we were lecturing in Moscow and we were like, should we show these feministic campaign or should we say these things? And then we're like, well, they booked us, so let's do it. And then afterwards, it was a long line of guys and girls who wanted autographs. Well, I don't know what they want, want our autographs for, mm-hmm. but they were all so thankful that we they were also like, no one has ever came to Russia or where we heard and said these things to us. Uh, and I think that's like worth so much. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It must be shocking for certain cultures who don't think like that. And for you to be on the other end, like very far leaning left. And then it's like, whoa, it's like cold water in everybody's face. And they appreciate that. But then you wonder like, is, are we going to be followed by the KGB afterwards? Like what's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> but Maybe. you got back. The story has a happy ending. Exactly. Yeah. But I see you as this on stage. I see you as, Okay. Maybe this isn't fair, but let me just put this out there. Mm-hmm. I see you as warm, but a little pissed off. You're a little bit of an outlaw, a jester, and a magician all put together. I mean, is, is that fair? Because sometimes I feel like you're walking around talking about things and being who you are is a big middle finger to the anti you. Like you, you're making enemies for sure. Mm. And do, you, do you see yourself as that? Yeah. Yeah. When you said it, it yeah, it, it's like that. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I felt definitely. it. I'm like, oh, my God. It's like if I worked at a corporate agency, I'm like, I think he's attacking us right now. He's saying we're still yeah, boring. Exactly. OK. <laughs> OK. So uh, I'm just mindful of time here. It's just like we have a few minutes left. But I wanted to get into mm-hmm. what I think is this um, this thematic thing that is tying the work together. I get the sense that maybe down and in, deep inside or maybe it's not that deep inside, but you're a little bit of a practical joker. Like you're trying to pull pranks on everybody all the time. It feels like that. Is it? What do you mean? With with our work or with, the, with what? Well, with the work. Like, for example, there's two things that come to mind. Uh, I think there was an art director where you're like, let's just cast a bunch of nurse nurses and then just like switch out his oh, photo. Yeah. And it's like, that's kind of cruel. This is like this one moment for this guy to shine. And you're like, no, let's screw <laughs> him over. You know, let's just do that. Another one is the window. Where I think you switched out some of the uh, tile outside your office window, and people look down and look at it, not realizing the mirror was like a, a, oh, a yeah. two way mirror. It's like who thinks of like that? Like I, I, as an Asian, I try to just be like, no, I don't want to make anyone upset. But you, you're like, let me just mess around with people. Let's just poke the bear. It's innocent. It's fun. Yeah. But there's that practical joker in you. It is for sure. I mean, yeah. if you would see our office now, you would even. I mean, we have a Will Ferrell museum in our toilet where uh, where probably he will come visit because he knows about it already because his wife is Swedish, for example. Uh, we have uh, that window, like you said, the mirror that speaks with people, but it gives people compliments. So it says, don't worry, you look amazing. And a lot of people looking into that window actually looks worried when they walk past. They have this, when they, you only see yourself, Yeah, you are more critical. 
and it's like, do I look all right? It's always this critical look in the eyes. So uh, there we just wanted to give them a compliment to be like, mm -hmm. don't worry, you look amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, it is, uh, it, it is, uh, uh, we are, I think we like practical jokes. Yeah. Yeah. We fooled our, our intern to Costa Rica. He thought we were going to the country house and then we took him to, to Costa Rica for a week. And that was really fun as well. Mm. <laughs> well, so, in, yeah. the, in the talk you show, I assume it's real, but I don't know, you know, you never know with advertising if it's real or not. Mm -hmm that you steal some tools from the, the person who's doing the tile on the street mm -hmm. and then you carve it out and you switch. Is that like, is that an act of vandalism or did you have permission to do that? No, it's an act of vandalism, <laughs> but uh, we didn't steal the tools. We bought the tools. Okay, okay. But we looked at what tools they had to list them and we're like, okay, these must be available online. And they were really cheap. And then we basically just went out when they were on a coffee break and stole one of these tiles and yeah. went in again. Yeah. And then we sent that off uh, and, got our topography into it and then we yes. just uh when they were they were done we went isabel went out carved it and placed our there right and no one said anything it's just people photographing our quote if you love someone let it show is the quote yeah and i think that yeah it can be vandalism and if they want to remove it it's fine by us but yeah yeah but it's like it's in good fun just like your shower beer it's like Okay, are people really drinking beer in the shower and it's safe? I mean, I don't like glass in my sh like. So it's like there's always that element of just like mischievous, like borderline, like somebody could get hurt but nobody gets hurt kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. and is that um, something that is naturally comes from you, or do you work at like? It, it, did you pull pranks on on kids uh, when you were younger, or is this just like a professional pursuit? No, there's more a professional okay. thing. Yeah. But I mean of course in our friendship we have we have pranks but not like not not no we're not a pranksy gang of people but mm -hmm. it's more like in work we think yeah. that it's fun. Mm -hmm. And we like to be on the edge with both client work but also with 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 our own thing. Mm -hmm. But as you can see with our own things we don't have a client. We don't have a client or a risk minimizer so it's just people like should we really do this? Yeah, okay. And then no one says no. It's like you move from home and you have as much butter on your sandwich as you want because mom or dad can't tell you off or whatever. It's just like our own projects tend to like go out of hand, uh, but it's also fun and we do it to it gives us energy. We did a badminton film. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's on our website, but it's like um, us playing badminton. And the reason we did that was because the first ever Wi-Fi password we have was badminton. And we didn't, no one knew why. Someone just shows it and it sticked around forever. And we were like, let's do a movie about ourselves. What should it be about? And then when someone was like, our Wi-Fi password, let's do a badminton film. And then we did. And it became super big in a fun way. Mm -hmm. uh, the World Federation of Badminton shared it. And then a lot of badminton people were upset because they were like, this is not serious. Our sport is a serious sport. They're making fun of us. And then other people were like, well, <laughs> if we are so offended by this, maybe we should just take this as a good, like fun thing. So it was like very mixed, but mm -hmm. the Swedish head coach of badminton contacted us, was super happy. The president of the Swedish national badminton federation contacted us, was super happy. So a lot of people were super happy as well. So, but, but it was also on the edge. Like some people really hated yes. us in that world and some, some people were super happy. So, <laughs> well, it's very in keeping with the SNAS philosophy, which is make enemies and gain fans. And I mm. think because you're you're brave enough brave enough to be on that edge, where it's kind of like 
politely offensive or you know some somewhere in there it's it's innocently offensive or possibly where you actually get a lot of people to pay attention and in this world of like boring me to advertising marketing and design we just we just need a, a break from all that sameness and i think that's where you guys always cut through and and i want to tie it back to something we said at the very beginning here which is when you came on stage and you tell these stories and you're making people laugh and just it's just you guys are just outrageous what you do but what i saw in there was like genius storytelling in that there's an idea and here's some work that explains the idea and then there's a little self-referential meta commentary because you're like, okay, here's the logo quilt. Everybody here needs one. So you can download ours and just use it. We don't even have these clients anymore anyway, so who cares? And so there's that kind of just whatever. Like we're just the punk rock bad boys of advertising and design. And I, I think it's wonderful. So I, I think you are a very effective teacher. So it wasn't just fun and games, although it was very funny. And and I had a, a really good time. It was a very memorable presentation. So um, are you doing uh, virtual talks now that uh, you can't travel? Yeah, yeah. So we, we've done some one in Vancouver. I mean, it's funny to say Vancouver now because it's right. not in Vancouver. I did it from here. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did one in, in Vancouver. We did one. Yeah. yeah, so we've done a few all over the place. Yeah. But from the same room. So, uh-huh. yeah. And, and how do you feel about that? Like doing virtual versus live? Because so much of what you do is live, I think. Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 horrible. It's yeah. like uh, uh, because you can also only hear yourself because yeah. if it's on Zoom, everyone else is muted. Right. So it's like no one is laughing. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're telling jokes and no one is laughing, or you're saying something you think is at least a little bit profound, and you mm-hmm. don't even get a humming or anything. It's just like dead silent. So you and you don't know one time. I dropped out of uh, my sound stop working and I didn't notice for like two minutes until I got a text message from the guy who organized <laughs> like, Hey, something went wrong with a sound. You need to, uh, <laughs> and I, just, I felt so sad. I was like, yeah. I was speaking to myself for right, like right. two minutes. Yeah. The sad part is there's no difference. It's like you're speaking to yourself or you're speaking to the audience. There's no feedback and it's really no. dis- dysregulating. Yeah. So how do you find the energy to do that when you normally get a laugh or a ooh, you know, whatever it is that you do? How do you find the energy to keep going? I think I just pretend that people are laughing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've been at worst. I've, I've actually been at events where no one has been laughing and just watching. Yeah. No one has been like it was like or people have just we were at a, in a Swedish uh, event in Colombia and they had booked us but no one who was there was a design fan or a advertising oh. fan they were just people council like diplomats oh, wow. so they didn't want to listen to us which I understand right. so the whole talk people were just standing talking to each other and drinking some bubbly wine or whatever mm-hmm. and that was probably the hardest thing to do because. Yeah, I can blatantly see no one is caring. And here I am doing my one hour thing. <laughs> but uh, so, I mean, I think I just pretend that people are laughing or whatever. <laughs> and then I just keep going. What do you, because you must do the same, right? <laughs> yes, it is tough. So that's, that's interesting. I, I didn't think of it like that. I don't, I, I, I'm just trying to teach again, you know, so I'm not really thinking about, does everybody need to be rolling on the floor laughing and just like hitting their knees, slapping themselves, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's kind of funny. <laughs> just thinking yeah. about that. 
but I'm actually very used to um, to being on the camera and teaching this way without an audience. And so we're trying to design experiences where I can actually hear and see people. Uh, a while ago, Tony Robbins spent, I think, $9 million creating this sphere of screens so that he can actually see the audience and they can see him. And then, oh, wow. Yeah. And then he has people coming in and with lights and jumping up and down, and it's a party. So imagine like a guy like him who needs to feed off the energy of people. He would be dead energy level without seeing mm. people. And so we we create the poor man's version of that with like a bunch of screens. And we're like, oh, it's kind of so we're working on that. But I'm, I'm used to like just speaking to no one and then reading the comments two days later to see if it worked. So there's just yeah. a delay, you know, <laughs> so it's not real time yeah. feedback. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you miss the mark. And like, oh, man. All right. I'll work on that again for next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Freddie, it was it was really wonderful talking to you. I, I, I am an admirer of the work uh, and I'm an admirer of the way that you present. And I, I wish more people thought about not only the work that they do, but how they speak about it so that on stage could be 10 different versions of SNAS, you know, so it's like, oh, wow, there's a different way. And there's so I really, really enjoyed that. I, I wanted to ask you before we leave. Mm-hmm. Is there something that's coming up for you that you're really excited about, either on a personal or professional level? There are things coming up in the fall that I can't tell you. Okay. But one is a project uh, and for a big brand, and one is uh, a big happening in our organization, a big change within the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's stupid of me to say it because I can't say, tell you what it is. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's the two things the two secret things <laughs> two secret things you can't say anything about <laughs> exactly but then i'm really excited about coming yeah. up uh i mean other than that it's just uh swedish summer coming up i'm super happy for that because we've been in the dark for like so long now mm. so that mm-hmm. will i will look forward to that so. okay well very good it was it was a delight to talk to you i i hope that when the world opens up uh, that uh, I'll run into you backstage somewhere and we can we can uh, connect again in person. Definitely. I would love to, Chris. And thank you so much for, for this talk. It was super nice. Thank you. And if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Just go to snask.com or our Instagram. Okay, beautiful. Thank you very much. My name is Freddy Ost from Snask. You're listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.